And welcome into the Bible Reading Podcast. Today is episode 12, and we're asking the question, what is the blasphemy of the Spirit, the unforgivable sin? Our chapters that we're reading today is Genesis 13, Nehemiah 2, Matthew 12, and Acts chapter 12. And I want to open the show today and give some shout-outs to people who have left us reviews lately. On Apple Podcasts, we have a review from Monty O, from Carrie P, from Courtney, and from Angel. Thank you all so much. We also have had some people commenting on the blog in the past week, letting us know they were listening and asking questions and saying really nice things. Angie from Knoxville, Og from Salinas, Courtney J from Birmingham, and Miss Judy Bloom from Parts Unknown. Thank you all. When you leave comments on the blog, uh, and, and especially when you leave reviews uh, on Apple Podcasts, is probably the best place, but there's other places as well. It really helps us get our the word out and uh, share the show with a lot of other people. And please do that, because that's a huge help. All right, enough about that. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, reading in the Christian Standard Bible. At that time, Jesus passed through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick and eat some heads of grain. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, See, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, Haven't you read what David did when he and those who were with him were hungry, how he entered the house of God and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him or for those with him to eat, but only for the priest? Or haven't you read in the law that on Sabbath days the priests in the temple violate the Sabbath and are innocent? I tell you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Moving on from there, he entered their synagogue. There he saw a man who had a shriveled hand, and in order to accuse him, they asked, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And he replied to them, Who among you, if he had a sheep that fell into a pit on the Sabbath, wouldn't take hold of it and lift it out? A person is worth far more than a sheep, so it is lawful to do what is good on the Sabbath. Then he told the man, stretch out your hand. So he stretched it out, and it was restored as good as the other. But the Pharisees went out and plotted against him how they might kill him. Jesus was aware of this and withdrew. Large crowds followed him, and he healed them all. He warned them not to make him known, so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not argue or shout, and no one will hear his voice in the streets. He will not break a bruised reed, and he will not put out a smoldering wick until he has led justice to victory. The nations will put their hope in his name. Then a demon-possessed man who was blind and unable to speak was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man could both speak and see. All the crowds were astounded and said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, This man drives out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. Knowing their thoughts, he told them, 
Every kingdom divided against itself is headed for destruction, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons drive them out? For this reason, they will be your judges. If I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. How can someone enter a strong man's house and steal his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Anyone who is not with me is against me, and anyone who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven." Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the one to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit will be good, or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is known by its fruit. Brood of vipers, how can you speak good things when you are evil? For the mouth speaks from the overflow of the heart. A good person produces good things from his storeroom of good, and an evil person produces evil things from his storeroom of evil. I tell you that on the day of judgment, people will have to account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. He answered them, An evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, because they repented at Jonah's preaching. And look, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And look, someone greater than Solomon is here. When an unclean spirit comes out of a person, it roams through waterless places looking for rest but doesn't find any. Then it says, I'll go back to my house that I came from. Returning, it finds the house vacant, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and settle down there. As a result, that person's last condition is worse than the first. That's how it will be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking with the crowds, his mother and brothers were standing outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, Look, your mother and your brothers are standing outside waiting to speak to you. He replied to the one who was speaking to him, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Amen. So there's so many directions we could go with this passage, but one question I have got a lot as a pastor over the years is, 
What is the unforgivable sin exactly? What does it mean to blaspheme the Spirit? Now, if you're a longtime listener of this podcast, you will know that at some point last year, we covered this question in a very long and very in-depth episode. In fact, I've copied the article for that episode, and I've put it online at the Bible Reading Podcast. It is a long article. I don't know, like uh, the equivalent of 10 or 15 print pages. It's thousands of words. I don't even remember how long it is, but it's there. And there's a lot of material in it if you really, really, really want to dig deep on this. But for today, since it's the weekend and since this is a short podcast in audio form, we're not going to dig super deep because here's the thing. People ask that question all the time, and there's all sorts of speculation about what exactly the unpardonable sin is. Even a guy who I have a ridiculous amount of admiration for, literally maybe my my all-time pastoral hero, one of the very few ages that uh, incidences where I... It's not like I disagree with him, but I scratch my head a little bit when Spurgeon says this. This is Charles Spurgeon talking about the unforgivable sin. He says, nobody knows what that sin is. I believe that even God's word does not tell us, and it is very proper that it does not. As I have often said, it's like the notice we sometimes see put up man traps and spring guns set here. We don't know whereabouts the traps and guns are, but we have no business over the hedge at all. In other words, he's talking about a property that's booby-trapped, maybe in our day with landmines or whatever. He continues, so there is a sin unto death, and we're not told what that sin is, but we have no business to go over the hedge into any transgression at all. That sin unto death may be different in different people, but whoever commits it from that very moment loses all spiritual desires. He has no wish to be saved, no care to repent, no longing after Christ. So dreadful is the spiritual death that comes over the man who has committed it that he never craves eternal life. Now, there's a lot of speculation in there, but here's the thing. It is a reality that Jesus warned his disciples and the Pharisees and the scribes and us through the word that there is a sin that could be committed, it's possible to be committed, that was unpardonable for all eternity. Unpardonable means unforgivable. People have speculated and worried about this teaching of Jesus for hundreds of years. So we're going to talk a little bit today because I don't think the Bible is quite as unclear as Mr. Spurgeon does, all respect in the world again, about what exactly that sin is. And if you go to my, uh, if you go to the website, BibleReadingPodcast.com, you're going to find that I've put tons and tons of opinions by all sorts of people. Uh, John Chrysostom, Athanasius, Andreas of Caesarea, the Didache, which is a very early first century document, Billy Graham. You say, well, what did Billy Graham say? Well, this is what he said. He said, the sin of the religious leaders, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, was a refusal to accept the witness of the Holy Spirit to who Jesus was and what he had come to do, and then submit their lives to him. The unpardonable sin is not some particularly grievous sin, says Billy Graham, committed by a Christian before or after accepting Christ, nor is it thinking or saying something terrible about the Holy Spirit. Rather, it is deliberately resisting the Holy Spirit's witness and invitation to turn to Jesus until death ends all eternity. Now, 
Billy Graham saying that, he's echoing something that the church has sort of been saying for oh, 1,700 years or so. Uh, Augustine, uh, or Augustine, however you want to pronounce it, he said something very similar in the 300s. I... I don't agree that that's what the Bible is saying, but I, the bottom line is, if you do reject the gospel, if you do reject the leading of the Holy Spirit, if you don't turn to Jesus with all your heart and follow him and believe him as the as the savior to your sins and not trust your own works of righteousness, but trust what he's done, if you don't turn to Jesus and wholeheartedly follow him in faith believing Yes, you're not going to make it into heaven, but I don't think that's what Jesus is saying, and I think the text will prove that. There's, And I can understand where Billy Graham is coming from, but some of these things that people say is really so far outside the bounds of Scripture that I just scratch my head. For instance, a modern writer, Nancy Hardesty, has said, Ultimately, the refusal to allow women to fully use their gifts in the church and in the world is a form of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Well, I I don't think at all that's what's going on here. I don't think that's what the passage is saying, really not even close. So, I, I see two kind of major ways to answer the question. We can answer it based on the context of the passage, and we can answer it based on what Jesus said grammatically. And honestly, generally speaking, those are the best two ways to answer any Bible question. And this one, and my goodness, maybe I'm just an idiot, because if Spurgeon and Billy Graham aren't seeing something clearly that I think I am, maybe you should sort of lean in the direction of Spurgeon and Billy Graham. Uh, So take this that I'm about to tell you with a grain of salt. But when you do, really do search the scriptures, because I don't think this is that unclear. So we answer the question contextually and grammatically. And in doing that, we find a really massively important clue in Mark chapter 3, verse 30, where Mark tells us precisely why Jesus warned the Pharisees and scribes about this sin. And he says this, quote, because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. The exact same situation is described in Matthew 12, 31, which says, because I tell you, people will be forgiven every sin and blasphemy, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. The thing is, the scribes and Pharisees are accusing Jesus of doing miraculous things. In this particular case, they're accusing him of driving out demons by the power of the demon Beelzebub or Beelzebul, rather than the power of God. So what does that tell us? I think that tells us a really, really big clue contextually. That means in terms of what the passage actually says in the verses around the passage, what they say, ascribing or giving credit something like to something like an exorcism that is factually done by the power of God and God's Holy Spirit and saying that that's actually not done by God and the Holy Spirit, but done by a demon is at best dangerously close to blaspheming the Holy Spirit. That's what the Pharisees were doing. They were saying, no, Jesus was casting out demons by the power of the Holy Spirit, but the Pharisees and the scribes were looking at it and saying, oh, he's doing this by the power of the chief demon, Beelzebul. And Jesus said, whoa, hold on, guys. Look, you can be forgiven for 
a lot of the garbage you're saying and doing. But if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you will not be forgiven. Now, to be fair to Spurgeon, who has a little bit of mystery about this passage, Jesus does not make it crystal clear in here that the scribes and Pharisees were actually committing this sin or if they were just getting close to committing it. And because he didn't say, oh, well, you guys are not going to be forgiven. You just did it. I think the second or the latter of those two things is the best option. That rather than having exactly committed the unpardonable sin, they were getting very close to committing the unpardonable sin. So contextually, that tells us that saying something slanderous about the Holy Spirit, like that thing right there that that you think is the Holy Spirit doing it, it's being done by demons. That's very slanderous. That is very close. And I think that gives us a big, massive clue about what the unpardonable sin is, what blasphemy of the Spirit is. So that gets us to a really important question. What exactly is blasphemy? And I think the Bible kind of pretty clearly answers that question. Luke 12.10, for instance, points us in the right direction where it says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Matthew 12.32 makes that even more more clear when it says, whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. So, to me, that sort of removes the element of mystery. And it actually, all respect in the world to Billy Graham, but it actually sort of contradicts what he says. He says, oh, it's not speaking a word against the Holy Spirit, but right there in black and white, Matthew twelve thirty two tells us, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him. So, don't do that. Don't slander the Holy Spirit. Don't speak negative words against the Holy Spirit. If you see somebody doing something, uh, preaching or ministering to people or whatever, and uh, I don't know, maybe you don't like that person. Maybe they're flamboyant on TV or uh, you know them at church or whatever, and you have a bad opinion of them. You better be careful speaking something about the Holy Spirit related to that person Because if whatever they're doing is in the power of the Holy Spirit and you've misjudged it, you are really close to the thing that Jesus warned the Pharisees and the scribes about. And in particular, obviously, Matthew 12, 32, if you speak against the Holy Spirit, there's no forgiveness for that. Isaiah 37, 23 um, also, I think, gives us a hint about what blasphemy is. It, the verse says this, Who is it you have mocked and blasphemed? Who have you raised your voice against and lifted your eyes in pride against the Holy One of Israel? So blasphemy is really, really closely related to raising your voice against somebody, lifting your eyes in pride against somebody, and mocking them. The word itself, it's a Greek word, blasphemos, is kind of a portmanteau, which is sort of two words kind of smashed together. Blapto, which means hurt, and feme, which we get the word fame from, it sort of means uh, a word sort of like reputation. So etymologically, 
in terms of uh, the the origin of the word, the word sort of means defame or revile or just really obviously to hurt the reputation of somebody. And it's not just a word that's used with uh, God. Paul, in fact, speaks of being blasphemed by people for being an apostle. And he's not saying, hey, I'm God. These people are blaspheming, blaspheming me. No, it was a more common word than that. It's used sort of very similar to what we would say uh, the word defame would be. Paul commands the church in Titus not in Titus 3:2 not to slander or speak evil of or defame or revile any person. And I think we probably should take that command a lot more seriously than we actually do. 2 Peter 2:10 and uh, also Jude verse 8, I believe, both warn Christians and people in general against uh, blaspheming angels, demons, and other spiritual beings. So basically, blasphemy is speaking ill of someone, speaking evil of them, hurting them with your words, seeking to harm their reputation. So blaspheming the Holy Spirit, pretty simply, is speaking evil of him, defaming him, attacking him, reviling him with your words, seeking to harm his reputation. The Pharisees and scribes were doing that, or probably more likely coming very close to doing that, when they said it was Satan, Beelzebul, empowering Jesus, when in point of fact, it wasn't Satan and Beelzebul, it was the Spirit of God himself. And Jesus sternly warned them about it. I think R.C. Sproul just absolutely nails it here when he says their statements, the statements of the scribes and Pharisees, were directed against Jesus. So he said to them, you can blaspheme me and be forgiven, but when you question the work of the Spirit, you are coming perilously close to the unforgivable sin. You are right at the line, says Sproul. You are looking down into the abyss of hell. One more step and there will be no hope for you. He was warning them to be very careful not to insult or mock the Holy Spirit. Now, a couple more questions. Uh, Question number one, why? Why is it, it's not okay, but why is it forgivable to blaspheme Jesus, but unforgivable to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And I'll just be honest with you, my friends. I think any answer any person could give to that is speculation. Because as far as I can tell, I see absolutely no reason in all of Scripture that would explain that. It doesn't make sense to me, but because Jesus said it, I'm going to tell you, I take it at face value. Final question, and this one I get a lot. Is it possible for a Christian to commit the unforgivable sin? And here's the thing. I have heard pastors all the time. R.C. Sproul kind of goes this direction. Others do as well. Billy Graham in particular did. They say, no, it's not possible for a Christian to commit that sin. Here is my problem with that. Jesus gives us a very stern warning that we would do well to pay the gravest of attentions to. 
And he never says, oh, but you guys that are my disciples, you don't have to worry about this because you can't do this. There's nothing I read in scripture in all of the times this issue comes up. And I believe that's uh, three or four times. Definitely Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Um, I, all the times this issue comes up, there's nothing in scripture that would make me say, oh yeah, Christians, no, it's impossible for Christians to commit this sin. I don't see that. So I don't want to give, uh, false assurance essentially that it's impossible. And I think John Piper strikes a really good balance on that question. He says, the fact that there is an unforgivable sin, that there comes a point in a life of sin after which the Holy Spirit will no longer grant repentance, that fact should drive us from sin with fear and trembling. None of us knows when our toying with sin will pass over into irrevocable hardness of heart. Very few people feel how serious sin is. Very few people are on the same wavelength with Jesus when he said in Mark 9.43, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life maimed than with two hands to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. Instead, Piper says, many professing Christians today have a, such a sentimental view of God's justice that they never, never feel terror and horror at the thought of being utterly forsaken by God because of their persistence in sin. They have the naive notion that God's patience has no end and that they can always return from any length and depth of sin, forgetting that there is a point of resistance which belittles the Holy Spirit so grievously that he withdraws forever with his convincing power, convicting power, leaving them never able to repent and be forgiven. That's, uh, that's strong. That's a strong warning. And I'll close with this. The Holy Spirit, God the Holy Spirit, is all-powerful. And we should tremble in his presence. Just like John fell at the risen Jesus' feet as though a dead man in Revelation. I don't want to blunt the warnings of Jesus with false assurance. It's likely that. It's likely that if you're somebody who's worried you've committed the unpardonable sin, that you haven't. It's likely that you, if you're worried that you have, it's likely that you haven't. But because honestly, only the Spirit's work in your life would make you fear the Lord, would make you sort of concerned about something like that. But the way that Jesus addressed this issue is with the highest, highest, highest level of seriousness. And we need to take it just as seriously. This passage rightly inspires fear in us, and that's okay. It should. It's obviously recorded in multiple books in Scripture to make us tremble. And it is not a bad thing to tremble, my brothers and sisters. Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and discipline. Proverbs 10.27, the fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked are cut short. That's um, strong. And good for us to remember, the fear of the Lord is not a bad thing, but a wonderful thing. Let's go to Genesis chapter 13, verse 1 in the Christian Standard Bible. Abram went up from Egypt to the Negev. He, his wife, and all he had in Lot with him. Abram was very rich in livestock, silver and gold. He went by stages from the Negev to 
Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai, where his tent had formerly been, to the site where he'd built the altar, and Abram called on the name of the Lord there. Now Lot, who was traveling with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, but the land was unable to support them as long as they stayed together, for they had so many possessions that they could not stay together. And there was quarreling between the herdsmen of Abram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. At that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were living in the land. So Abram said to Lot, Please, let's not have quarreling between you and me or between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, since we're relatives. Isn't the whole land before you? Separate from me. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. Lot looked and saw that the entire plain of the Jordan, as far as Zoar, was well watered everywhere like the Lord's garden in the land of Egypt. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose the entire plain of the Jordan for himself. Then Lot journeyed eastward, and they separated from each other. Abram lived in the land of Canaan, but Lot lived in the cities on the plain and set up his tent near Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were evil sinning immensely against the Lord. After Lot had separated from him, the Lord said to Abram, Look from the place where you are. Look north and south, east and west, for I will give you and your offspring forever all the land that you see. I will make your offspring like the dust of the earth, so that if anyone could count the dust of the earth, then your offspring could be counted. Get up. Walk around the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went to live near the oaks of Mamre at Hebron, where he built an altar to the Lord. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. During the month of Nisan, in the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence, so the king said to me, Why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, May the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, What is your request? So I prayed to the God of the heavens and answered the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried, so that I may rebuild it. The king, with the queen seated seated beside him, asked me, How long will will your journey take, and when will you return? So I gave him a definite time, and it pleased the king to send me. I also said to the king, if it pleases the king, let me have letters written to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates River so that they will grant me safe passage until I reach Judah. And let me have a letter written to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me timber to rebuild the gates of the temple's fortress, the city wall, and the home where I will live. The king granted my requests. For the gracious hand of my God was on me. Hallelujah. 
I went to the governors of the region west of the Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent officers of the infantry and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard that someone had come to pursue the prosperity of the Israelites, they were greatly displeased. After I arrived in Jerusalem and had been there three days, I got up at night and took a few men with me. I didn't tell anybody what my God had laid on my heart to do for Jerusalem. The only animal I took was the one I was riding. I went out at night through the valley gate toward the serpent's well and the dung gate, and I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that had been broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but further down it became too narrow for my animal to go through. So I went up at night by way of the valley and inspected the wall. Then, heading back, I entered through the valley gate and returned. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing, for I had not yet told the Jews, priests, nobles, officials, or the rest of those who should be doing, who would be doing the work. So I said to them, You see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned. Come, let's rebuild Jerusalem's walls so that we will no longer be a disgrace. I told them how the gracious hand of my God had been on me and what the king had said to me. And they said, let's start rebuilding. And their hands were strengthened to do this good work. When Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about this, they mocked and despised us and said, What is this you're doing? Are you rebelling against the king? I gave them this reply. The God of the heavens is the one who will grant us success. We, his servants, all start building, but you will start building, but you have no share, right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. Acts chapter 12, verse 1. About that time, King Herod violently attacked some who belonged to the church, and he executed James, John's brother, with the sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter, too, during the festival of unleavened bread. After the arrest, he put him in prison and assigned four squads of four soldiers each to guard him, intending to bring him out to the people after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was praying fervently to God for him. When Herod was about to bring him out for trial, that very night Peter, bound with two chains, was sleeping between two soldiers while the sentries in front of the door guarded the prison. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared and a light shone in the cell. Striking Peter on the side, he woke him up and said, Quick, get up! And the chains fell off his wrists. Get dressed, the angel told him, and put on your sandals. And he did. Wrap your cloak around you, he told him and follow me. So he went out and followed, and he did not know that what the angel did was really happening, but he thought he was seeing a vision. After they passed the first and second guards, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened to them by itself. They went outside and passed one street, and suddenly the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's grasp and from all that the Jewish people expected. As soon as he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John Mark, where many had assembled and were praying. He knocked at the door of the outer gate, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer. She recognized Peter's voice, 
And because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the outer gate. You're out of your mind, they told her, but she kept insisting that it was true, and they said, well, it must be his angel. Peter, however, kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were amazed. Motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. Tell these things to James and the brothers, he said, and he left and went to another place. At daylight, there was a great commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had searched and did not find him, he interrogated the guards and ordered their execution. Then Herod went down from Judah to Caesarea and stayed there. Herod had been very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Together they presented themselves before him. After winning over Blastus, who was in charge of the king's bedroom, they asked for peace because their country was supplied with food from the king's country. On an appointed day, dressed in royal robes and seated on the throne, Herod delivered a speech to him, to them. The assembled people began to shout, It's the voice of a god and not of a man! At once an angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give the glory to God and he was eaten by worms and died. But the word of God flourished and multiplied. After they had completed their relief mission, Barnabas and Saul returned to Jerusalem, taking along John, who was called Mark. That is the word of the Lord, my friends. I hope it was an encouragement and a blessing to you. I hope this show is stimulating in you and in me a desire to daily be in the word of God because that's what the goal is not to lay a load on your back or a burden but to encourage you with the refreshing word of the Lord on a daily basis God bless you and Godspeed we'll see you tomorrow